0: James uh, chapter 3, 1 through 12, Taming the Tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member yet a boast of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Who are made in the likeness of God? From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. God's word. Thank
1: you, Don. James is, uh, if anything, he's a pastor. His congregation is vast. It's geographically spread out. They're not all in one location on any given uh, Lord's Day. They're typically gathered in people's homes. There, There aren't physical churches that people meet in for several centuries. But one of the things that James is concerned about, and he's been concerned in this whole letter, is this idea that faith has no fruit that that you could profess and believe in who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, but have no effect on the way in which we live our lives. And so as a pastor, he has been slowly working through, okay, faith without works is dead. Well, let me tell you about the works. Let me tell you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not just for you that you might be able to say, God is at work in me, he's transforming my heart. That's true, and that is uh, one of the aims of James as a pastor to his congregation. But the other concern that James has is, what does our witness look like? That is, if, if we truly are a collection of the people of God who have been collectively transformed, what do we communicate to the world and one of the ways that James is going to narrow in in the text we have today is on the way we talk, the way we speak to one another, the way we use our words, to the point where James's warning is found in the second verse where he comes out right away. Obviously, in, in verse 1, he talks about teachers, but he leaves teachers almost right away, right after verse 1, where he says, uh, uh, don't aspire, don't everybody aspire to be teachers are going to be held to a higher account. That's true, but that's the only thing he talks about teachers. The rest of our text is about the congregation. And he says in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. There's never been a more truer statement about us as a church than everyone in here has stumbled in many ways. It's not like we all stumbled in one way, and therefore, if somebody could come up with uh, a one way to escape that stumbling, then we would all be okay. But the truth is, we all stumble in many ways. Never a more true statement. But he's going to narrow it into one way we all stumble. He says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, here's the here's the impossibility. He is a perfect man. You hear what he's saying. He says, if you don't stumble in this way, then you're perfect. You might as well uh, 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 move on to heaven. Uh, But since there aren't any of those, I need to address the way in which we speak to one of the way we use words. That is, James is saying, "As as your pastor, not only do I use words wrongly, But you use words wrongly. I hurt people, you hurt people. And hurting people hurt people. That's what James is saying about our words. So if James had heard that phrase that we uttered as kids when somebody was teasing us, when somebody was using hurtful words, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. James would say, that's baloney. That is meatless truth and therefore it's a lie words can hurt in fact words can destroy psychology today which is no beacon uh, necessarily of christianity and a biblical truth has recognized this and said it this way sticks and stones uh, may break my bones but words can cut me deeply because they have loads, thousands and thousands, if not millions of patients that would attest that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can too. Words have the ability to uh, give us confidence and courage and healing. The, a right word at the right moment can do so much for the human soul. And James says, we know that because it's been done to us somebody has come along in our 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 darkest time our greatest need and said something encouraging to us and lifted us up out of what we were feeling and experiencing but james also recognizes that words not only build us up not words not only encourage us they take courage they take our confidence they hurt us they do us harm and that's James is not saying something radically new here. This is all stuff we should know. This is all stuff we do know. And yet, we hurt each other. Yet we use words that hurt. Because words are never just words. There's never been a neutral word ever uttered by a human being. They've either encouraged... Or destroyed they've either hurt or healed even the Bible recognizes this about words one of the things that you'll see over and over again in the scripture is this words brought galaxies into existence Genesis 1 says the Lord said let there be and there was let, them, let there be a sun and a moon and a stars, and there were sun, moon, and stars, but not only that the Bible says their words redeem they don 't just create, they redeem, and we have great a picture of that in Romans where paul says for i 'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the Gospels, the power of God for salvation. Therefore, the words have power. So much so that we know from John's writings that the word was with God and the word was God. But also the words have the ability to, to raise the dead. Jesus comes to the tomb in John 11 his, his buddy's been dead for four days in that tomb. They've already started the funeral. It goes on for days. They're wailing. They're wishing he had not died. The, the sisters, Mary and Martha, are wishing that Jesus had showed up because they know that Jesus could have prevented the death. And Jesus shows up too late from their perspective. And so what does Jesus do? He, he commands Lazarus, who's been in the tomb for four days, decomposition has already started. Come out of there. And Lazarus rises from the dead and walks out of a tomb, something they had not yet seen. And it's at that moment it says that that's when they decided to kill Jesus because his popularity would be off the charts. And when Jesus' popularity goes up, the religious leader's popularity goes down, and they can't have that. James, in our text, is going to use three images, three metaphors, three ideas to help us understand the power of words. He's going to say, you know, your words, I know he's using the word tongue, but the tongue is an instrument for the words. That is, the words are produced by the tongue. The tongue is the neutral thing. The words that come off of them are the what's not neutral. And so he says, he says our words are, can be like a bit in the horse's mouth. And you know you can control the, the horse by pulling on the bit. He says, he uh, says, our words are not just like a horse they're like the rudder of a big ship you control the rudder you control the direction of the ship but I would say not only is that metaphor true about the ship you just control the fleet you don't just control one ship but you have the ability through your words to affect the entire fleet and where they are going And the third metaphor he uses is that of a fire that consumes a forest. And we have seen that, that that mere words, that what sounded like mere words set ablaze the forest and everything is lost. You remember, well, most of you don't, but in the 1970s, there was this, this song that went around campfires that people would sing. It only takes a spark to get what? A fire going and soon all those around can warm up in it's glowing. Doesn't it sound great? It almost, you want to hold hands and stand. <laughs> the truth is, not all fires warm us. There are some fires that burn us. And James is not concerned with the warming fires as much as the burning fires right now. Because of those two things, not only does he see it as a danger to the individual members of his church, but also the witness of the church to the world. Therefore, these small things called words need to be taken with care. This is James' point. That those of us who who speak a lot to a lot of people need to be even more careful about the words in which we choose because they can either build up or tear down. They can either harm or heal, which are the only two points for this morning, so you have hope that this will not take long. First point is that words have the power to tear down to harm, to destroy. We find that, this is James talking in verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. That is, there are things that we say that can stain us, the whole thing. Setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. You know that's true. There there are things that have been said to you, particularly when you were young, that still stay with you, that have defined the way in which you see yourself and the way in which you see the world. Things that were said to you so long ago still have the stench of death that you wear because they have come all the way in and they have set a blaze in your heart. But it is also true. In your quiet moments, you can think of things that you have said that set a fire in someone else's heart. Words have this kind of power. And, and, and James is saying, it would be great to say, do not touch. You know, have you ever, have you ever seen that? You, you, you go into a museum or you go into some places and they're constantly telling you what not to touch. James is not doing that. James is not coming to the church and saying, okay, you've got words, just shut up. Just don't use them and you won't do any damage. No, no, no. James is going to call us, cause us or call us to use them rightly. But, but first, we have to recognize how we have wrongly used words to crush a human soul. In Eugene Peterson, if you've never read the, the message... He has, it's not really a translation, it's more of an interpretation. And when he gets to James 3 6, that I just read you, this is what he says it says. By our speech, by our words, we can ruin the world. Now, is that hyperbole? Turn harmony into chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke with it. Smoke right from where? The pit of hell. This is scary, he says. And if words can do that, then it is scary. Sometimes when I sit down with someone and they begin to tell their story, you you begin to see that it's not always actions that have been taken, but primarily words that have been used that have defined their world and the way in which they see the world. That's where sticks and stones could be the other way around. Sticks and stones may not hurt you, but words will always will when they're used wrongly. Well, how, how can they wrongly be used? How can, how can words hurt? Well, one of them is, and, and this is so obvious, that if we lie to one another, if we, we don't tell the truth, if we, if we allow the, a false reality to exist... That harms. That is, if if we consciously uh, try to manipulate others by, by withholding truth or allowing an untruth to be told, that does harm. Because we leave people making decisions based on false reality. That is, we allow them to live in a world that is not true. Secondly, a, a flattery, and you think, nah, how can flattery be wrong? Flattery is a form of lying. It's just acceptable. Because at the other end of it, we're being praised. You to look up flattery in the dictionary, it simply means to exaggerate praise. To distort praise out of proportion. So instead of being a good runner, you're an Olympic athlete. Instead of being an okay singer, you should be on Broadway. It's another way to distort reality and allow people to live with a lie. And that's why the Bible, when it begins to talk about truth-telling, that the church is the place where we tell the truth, but redemptively. That is, I'm not sharing truth to hurt. I'm sharing truth to redeem, truth to heal, the way that the Bible talks about that is it talks about truth in love. This is what Galatians 6, this is Paul talking about. How do, how do you do truth-telling? He says, you who are spiritual, you should restore the sinner in gentleness. That word restore, in the original language, means, it's a medical term that, that, that literally means to reset the bone. It's what uh, uh, orthopedic surgeons use that when someone has a broken bone how to fix that bone so what Paul is saying in Galatians 6 is that those of you who are spiritual and, and you're in the restorative ministry of people you're speaking words that heal then you need to understand you are setting bones you're, you're doing that kind of good work which means it needs to be done gently Oscar Wilde has this statement in one of his writings that I like. He says, a true friend stabs you in the front, not in the back. And not with a sword, but with a scalpel. I like that. That's sort of like an amen. It's a contemporary version. (laughs) Eugene Peterson. Message kind. But I think that's important to think is is that a person isn't trying to hurt you with their words. They're trying to heal you with their words. And that's why the scalpel is used instead of a sword. Sword kills, but a, a scalpel Heals. And and that's why gossip is is so much talked about by Paul and James in their writings. Why? Because it's such a terrible way to treat a friend. To talk about them, to run them down, to destroy their reputation in a way that is harmful. And so a true friend refuses to gossip about you. It's one of the ways you know who who your enemies are. Because they will stab you in the back when you're not looking. Rude words are a, a third kind of words that hurt. The Bible calls them biting or coarse jesting or rude talking or biting sarcasm. The word sarcasm in the original uh, Greek language meant to strip the flesh off us of something. Think about that. That when, when biting sarcasm and, and look... Often the, the, the preacher is talking about someone else's problems. But I am the most sarcastic person you will meet. I'll tell you why in a moment, why those of us who use sarcasm, particularly biting sarcasm, use it. It's an effective tool for something else. But just understand that sarcasm, even, even though we don't mean harm, it is like removing the flesh off your back. It bites the receiver, but it also exposes the giver. This is what Edmund Burke, he was a 17th century Irish parliamentarian, he said, rudeness is a weak man's imitation of strength because it's symptomatic of a fragile ego that craves any kind of attention. Did you hear that? Biting sarcasm is a revealing of a need for attention even if it's negative. And particularly when it's primarily used, is because you can't get the attention the other way. Fourth, abusive of words. The CDC, that's the government's disease control uh, center, they, they have stated that the third leading cause of people under the age of 29 is Suicide. I was reading a story out of the New York Times about a nine-year-old boy in New York City. Fourth grade now. He comes home. He's been bullied. And his only solution to the bullying is to take his own life. At nine years old, how bad does life have to get at nine that you, that you think that the only way to get the hurting to stop is to die? Imagine the parents, this article was about the parents and how they had, were, were dealing with the sorrow of their child, their little boy, nine years old, that the only way he could deal with his pain was to kill himself rather than come to them. They've done studies of these students who go into their schools and uh, shoot their classmates they're not doing all the shootings in America, but they're, they're doing a study uh, on the, the shootings that are in public schools or, or even private schools, but primarily in the public schools There is where they're getting their data. And the commonality of the shooters is this. They were bullied. Somebody used abusive words to them. One writer that I read said that bullying is like the pornography of the mouth. It's a cheap thrill at the expense of someone else without any commitment to that person. And once the thrill is gained, the person has been used and abused and then they are discarded. Bullies use abusive words because they were abused. Hurting people hurt people. Violence to another person's soul is a way that people medicate their souls. That's why James calls it what? Poison. Poison. Because it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And because their heart has been poisoned, all that comes out or much of what comes out is more poison. That's what he says in verse 8. He says, It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. This is what led John Chrysostom, who was the uh, great preacher in the early church. He was called the golden mouth. And this is what he said about this text. He said, Abusive words are worse than cannibalism. Because instead of eating someone who's dead, you're eating someone who's alive. Why is James so concerned about words? Why, particularly about words that hurt, that harm or like a raging fire in a forest. Why does James give all this attention, this almost this entire text? Well, James tells us in verse nine, he says, with the same mouth, we bless our Lord. And we curse people with that same mouth who are made in the image of God. There's a historical context that they would have understood. That is, they didn't have radio and television. They didn't have mass communication the way we did. Mass communication in the ancient world was through statues, through images of Caesar and of their gods. And the way that they mass communicated is that when you got a new emperor, you got a new Caesar, he would commission all these artists to make sculptures of himself And to place them in the center of towns of entire empire so that the people would know what Caesar looked like. And that Caesar was always watching, was always there, always present. Even if he had never visited your city. That was the way that he would say, I'm the Lord. You are my subjects. And so if in that town, you, you did not want to pay homage to Caesar, you, you in fact, w- would abuse your uh, position and, and would derail the leader, then you weren't just defacing uh, the uh, statue. You were directly harming Caesar. And that's why to deface a statue in the ancient worth, world was a death penalty offense. Because to deface the statue, the image, is to deface whose image is on the statue. How is that different than what the scriptures say about human beings? You know that's true because when Paul, when he still saw... He still, he's still uh, uh, is a, a key Jewish figure who is called the persecutor of the church. He literally was hunting down Christians all over the, the Palestine region on behalf of the Jews and to, 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 to weed out, to get rid of all these new Christians. And, and so when he's on the road and, and he meets Jesus on the road, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the image of God? No, no, no. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, what, what Caesars knew culturally, innately, the scriptures teach that when we harm a human soul... We are striking not just at the image of God himself, but God himself. That's why James is so concerned about our words. That the very mouth that we come to church and praise God and sing songs and confess, make confessions and and encourage one another, we use to harm people who are created in the image of God. And the power of words... To do that is an affront to God himself because we are in his image. That's not just a lifting us up. That's a recognition of his creation. But it's also not just words to harm, but harms to build up, harm words to heal. Every negative example that I've given you has a positive application, a life-giving one using words to heal the human soul. Verse 10, from that same mouth come what? Blessings and cursings. And then he says, my brothers, these things ought not be. Why? Because there's another way. How should we? That's the question we ought to be asked. If he says this is not the way it ought to be, then how should it be? Paul says in Colossians 4, which is a letter to another church, he says, let your speech always be what? Gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each each person. Why be gracious? It's because God has been gracious to us. You ever want a reason to look for the best in people who, who, who tries to catch people doing good and make much of that as opposed to looking for when they do something wrong and making much of that? This is it. Instead of making much of your sin, he deals with it through Christ and transfers your guilt to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness to you. And therefore, God loves you. And we talk a lot about God's love for us. But the other half of it is the person that's sitting next to you, the person that's down the street from you, the person that you consider not like you, the person that you don't, you try to avoid, you avert your eyes, or you get in your car and, and you roll up the windows whenever you're near. God loves them too. Because they were created in his image. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another. That word encourage means to put courage into someone. Imagine if every Sunday you knew you were going to meet dozens of people that you know and love, and some of them you don't know. But your goal and ambition on Sunday morning is they walk out of here with courage instead of discouragement. Not because of what's just set up front, but simply because you pursued them, you went for them, and you put courage into their soul. Every time I think about that, I think of Mariah Carey. Mar- Mariah Carey, at the height of her career, she said, a thousand praises can be wiped out by a single criticism. It, it, it doesn't matter often how many people tell you how great you are it only takes one person to tell, to tell you how great you are not. And that is what you fixate on. The reason I know that is because that's the way I'm built. And I assume if you're human, that's the way you're built too. That it only takes a one person to come up to you and say you're not all that great. And that's what you fixate on. And James is saying the church is going to be different than the world. And one of the ways that the church is different from the world is we put courage into one another rather than rob it from each other. We are looking to find the things that you are doing right and praise you for it, encourage you to keep on keeping on than the one thing you're doing wrong and condemning you for it. He says that's that's what makes the church radically different than the world because of the gospel we believe. I was at a meeting a couple years back, and it was a meeting because there were some younger pastors in the PCA that were feeling that they were being criticized by some, by some of the older pastors in our denomination for some of the things that they were trying to reach new people. They were just out there on the edge, and so this meeting was to try to work through some of the, the difficulties and hurt feelings. And, and so several of the young pastors were kind of sharing how their feelings were hurt by things that people had said. And, and, and so this one pastor in the, in the middle of it, he's an older pastor, and he said this. He said, you need to just toughen up. When we first got into the ministry, we had to be tough. And, and that's just the way it was. I mean, how many times have you heard a Naval Academy graduate say, but back when I was a midshipman, we didn't do those kinds of things. It was That's exactly what he was doing. He was just saying, when we came into the ministry, it was hard. You just need to toughen up. What he failed to recognize, is, and it's a colossal failure, is how fragile the human soul is since the fall. That's not the way we were created. We were not created fragile souls. We became fragile souls because of what happened there in the garden. And some of us, and this guy obviously is a perfect example. I'm another example. We're like bulls in a china shop. Something's going to break if we're loud in the room. We're going to say something. I, I can remember the, one of the first times I, I really realized this about myself. I was at this meeting and it was all young people and, and um, there was this girl. We were leaders of a, a, of a group of college students in one summer and there was this uh, beautiful girl that was sitting right next to me and all I could see of her was her profile. And I was being sarcastic and, and we were talking about standards uh, and, and it always comes up. You, you hardly ever say, hear, you know, guys need to just dress more appropriately. You hardly ever hear that. But it always gets to, girls need to dress more appropriately. And so I was harping on that sarcastically. And I said, you know what really bothers me when girls do this? You know, I, I, just, I, I just stumble every time I see it. It's when girls put three or four earrings in one ear. It was real popular at, back in the, the 80s. Maybe it still is. But she had them all on this ear that I could not see. Because there was only one stud in the ear that I could see. Biting sarcasm. Bull in a china shop. Meanwhile, she was so sweet. She just turned, didn't say a word (laughs) for me to see. I was just being sarcastic. It doesn't bother me. (laughs) But I was trying to show how sometimes we take this idea of standards to an excessive end. But I was wrong. I love Amy Boskamp. If you haven't read some of her work, it is so good. She says, speak words that make souls stronger, not weaker. When we speak, think about the words. Do they strengthen or weaken? Do they heal or hurt? The truth is, I don't always do that. And to be truthful, it's not always done to me either. James says replace the words that hurt with the words that heal. Can I share with you just. I can't. Um, Let me tell you where to get that power from. Where to get that power from is from the gospel. To 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 say, I don't need to make them feel bad because I feel bad. Where do you get the power to do that? Where do you get the power when someone puts it up on a tee for you to just swing away? They've done something and they've said something in in which they've teed it up for you to bring abiding sarcasm to 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 bring a word. Of displeasure to them. Where do you get the power to whiff that ball to not swing away? It's it's from the gospel because that's exactly what God has done for us. We teed it up. We took the worst things that humans can do against their God who created them, who loved them, who set them up for success. And we have done everything that we can to tell him how ungrateful we are for what he has done. We've put it on the highest tee possible and we have given him a driver to hit with. And rather than hitting us, he put another tee in the ground called a cross. He put another ball on top of it called a son and he swung away. And he drove him all the way to hell for us. If you ever want to know where's the power to have healing words rather than hurting words, rather, rather than, than robbing people of their courage to put courage into them, is to remember that. That the moment that he could have been the most discouraging to us, Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Heal them for they are mine. I came to die for them. You see, that's the only way you and I will ever get the power. And where do we see that in that passage? Only in two words? James is, if anything, an economist of words. He calls his people my brothers. You see, the gospel has made us family. And family are not supposed to rob courage or hope or dreams or life. We are supposed to give those things because God has given them to us to give away. That's, that's James. James. And, and, and we want to make James about a list of do's and don'ts, but he really does ground us so much into what we believe about what Jesus has done for us. And you might say, "Bruce, but that's, that's so incredibly unfair to take an innocent son of God and punish him for the guilty. You're right. I, I wish Christians would quit saying that's not true. It is unfair. We Americans, one of our highest values is to be fair. God is not fair. And we need to thank him he's not. Because if he was fair, when we had teed up our lives in front of him with our sin, he would have just swung away. And he would have buried us millions of miles away from the only true love that ever existed in the cosmos, himself. Himself. But instead, he said, "You are mine." And the "you" is plural. You all. I see. This is where God is so southern. (laughs) Y'all. You don't get it in the English. If you do it normal English, you northerners. You all. Y'all. You're mine. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. Brothers and sisters, do not treat each other as enemies. And when we see that, we must remember what Martin Luther King said. Injustice happens when good men remain silent. When you see bullies who use abusive words, when you see your pastor use those kinds of hurting words, then you must say something. Because we can't do that to one another. It's not good for us, and it's not good for our witness to the world. So let's go to him. Father, I thank you so much for these beautiful people that are yours. I thank you for those who are even in the room who hear this and think, man, it would be great to be part of a group like that. I pray that you make us so through your gospel. You've called us to not gossip or hurt or bite with sarcasm, but to build up and encourage. And you have left us the only power to do that with, Jesus Christ, who indwells in our hearts and makes us new. Out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. May we speak words that heal, not words that destroy. In Jesus' name, amen.